0: 1 Timothy, we are going to be in Acts 25 today. Look at verses 13 through the end of the chapter. But for now, 1 Timothy 1. And for our scripture reading, we'll do 15 through 17. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Now, to the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we say the same. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. We love you so much, Father. We're so thankful for this time to come together to be instructed by your holy and inspired word. We stand firm on the promises of your word, and so we need to know what those promises are, and so it's a a delight to dive in this morning to see what you have to say for us. Be with us, strengthen our hearts, encourage our hearts, and be glorified in our time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, so turn back to Acts chapter 25 if you would. We'll just dive right in here. Uh, Acts 25, where we again meet Paul after his standing before the judgment seat or tribunal of one Portius Festus, the new governor of Judea. Last we heard in verse 9, Paul had appealed to Caesar, knowing full well that Festus was seeking to do the Jews a favor, and was more than willing to send him back to Jerusalem where he would stand trial there. However, everyone everyone knew that the Jews had no intention of Paul making it to trial, they They weren't interested in justice, but rather judgment at their own hands. They weren't interested in concession, but rather condemnation. They weren't interested in carrying out God's will, but rather they were interested in preserving their own will, which was to extinguish the light that shone from Paul, which exposed the darkness of their hearts through his faithful proclamation of the light of the world, God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. To put it plainly, They wanted to ambush Paul. They wanted to murder Paul even before he got to town, uh, like they sought to do less than three years earlier. But Paul said, no, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. Rather, I'm going to exercise my rights as a Roman citizen and take this above your head, Festus. I want to go to Caesar, whom you would call the emperor, the revered one, the venerated one, the exalted one. I want to stand before Nero himself only proving these were descriptors ascribed to the title or the position rather than the man. But even so, remember at this point, Nero wasn't the Nero that we've all come to know. He wasn't the great persecutor of Christians just yet. That will come in about five to six years. But for now, Paul says, I'm, going, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I want to go to Rome, all right? So when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar To Caesar you shall go. So let's pick up at verse 13. Verse 13, Luke writes, Now, when several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. First thing we notice there, uh, Festus is in no hurry to fulfill Paul's request. He says, ah, stick him back in the cell a few more days, okay? I've, I've got company here. I've got company. Verse 14, while they were spending many days there, Festus finally laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered him, I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face, and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. Now, right from the start, right from the get-go, we see two main characters here. Okay? We see Agrippa, King Agrippa. We see Portius Festus. Last week, we learned about Festus the politician. This week, we have Agrippa the pervert. Now, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Why would you call him a pervert? Why would he be considered a pervert? Well, probably because of the lovely lady who accompanied on him, uh, and on this journey, I accompanied him on this journey here. Bernice, she was said to be his queen, but not in the formal sense, maybe an honorary queen, and apparently she was a real looker. She was an extremely beautiful woman who had all the charm and charisma of a modern-day cover girl. Oh, yeah, she was a distinguished lady indeed. There was just one small problem that proved to be a blight on her reputation, one small little detail that prevented her from being Agrippa's bride, and that was, well, She was his sister, his blood sister, in the fullest sense, same mom, same dad, yet she couldn't seem to pry herself away from the incestuous grip of her big brother, nor did she want to pry herself away from his grip. She liked it there. They were a happy couple, madly in love, madly in lust, and can you really blame them? They were only carrying on the rich tradition and legacy of the perversion which defined the Herodian dynasty at that time, uh, actually for generations. But this Jewish king and his sister lover in particular, they were the talk of the town. If they were living today, they'd be in all the tabloids. They would always be trending on social media. And the Roman world, as those of the world love to do, was said to be infatuated with their scandalous love affair. And this wasn't Bernice's first rodeo. She was married off for uh, political reasons to various rulers and kings in the region. In fact, she had three husbands, marrying the first when she was only 13. But all three marriages ended quickly, and by age 22, she was single again. Josephus, the Jewish historian who was actually a good friend of the couple, wrote, Bernice lived a widow a long while after the death of King Herod, king of Chalcis, who was both her husband and her uncle, but when the, report that, uh, when the report went that she had criminal conversation with her brother Agrippa, she persuaded Polemo, who was king of uh, Cilicia, to be circumcised and to marry her. Yet this matrimony didn't endure long, but Bernice left Polemo, and as was said, with impure intentions. Uh, it's at this moment she fled back into the arms of big brother. But again, this is just what the Herods did. In fact... The former governor that we read about in Acts 24, Felix, he got all mixed up in this too. Agrippa had, uh, had another sister that he sold off to various kings, but Felix always had an eye for her. Her name was Drusilla because uh, she, she was said to exceed all other women in beauty. That was Drusilla. So he devised a plan. He had one of his buddies pretend he was a magician to go to Drusilla, convincing her to break off her latest union and marry F- Felix instead, which she did... And that's why we saw Luke mention them in Acts 24. But again, as for Bernice, by the time we get to Acts 25, she'd been married several times, had two kids with her uncle before becoming a widow and shacking up with her big brother, the king of verse 13. Okay? Herod Agrippa II, that's who we're talking about. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, first, I had to justify calling him a pervert in our outline. Um, but second because Agrippa will prove to be a key player in our text both today and next week so we got to know about his background a little bit. He was a Herod. Okay? The Herods were perverts. They were all degenerate reprobate men and women who had notorious and nefarious reputations all throughout Palestine and the Roman Empire. Remember Herod Antipas? Remember that name? Mark chapter 6. That's Agrippa's great uncle. He killed John the Baptist. Why? Because John told them, you can't marry your brother's wife. He's still alive. They're still married. Not only that, but the girl in question, Herodias, was his niece. And remember, he ended up killing John because he he got all riled up watching her young daughter perform a sensual dance before him and all of his dinner guests. How about Herod the Great? Remember Herod the Great? He was the one who started all this mess, him and his five wives. He was Agrippa's great-grandpa. He was the one who had all the little boys, two and under, in Bethlehem slaughtered in hopes of wiping out the newborn king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just grandpa who was a tyrant, though. His own dad, King Agrippa I, had all kinds of problems as well. You remember, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword back in Acts chapter 12. He was going to kill Peter too, but on the next day, an angel let him out of the prisons. Luke says, one day, the elder Agrippa took his seat on the judgment seat, the Bema seat, right here in Caesarea, and made a pronouncement that brought false peace between his people and the people of Tyre and Sidon, causing the assembly to repeatedly cry out, the voice of a God and not a man. But immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. Remember that? says he was eaten by worms, breathed his last. The Agrippa here in our verse 13 was 17 years old when he saw his daddy eaten alive by worms. Surely he would end up giving God the glory then, right? We'll see next week. For now, just know that all the Herods were wicked, corrupt, grossly immoral men and women, but they had the position. They had the titles. They had the money. They had the authority. So here we are. Paul's in prison. He's appealed to the Caesar. Festus, the new guy, he's waiting to ship him off to Rome. King Agrippa rides into town with his little sis on his arms. Festus begins to explain the predicament that he's in, okay? And then the process, he clearly reveals again that he's a classic politician. So we got a pervert, we got a politician. Why do we call him a politician? Well, to summarize, uh, verses in 15 and 16, Festus says to Agrippa, we got this guy Paul in jail. He's Jewish, but he's also a Roman. He did something to offend these Jews. They all want him dead. But I'm a firm believer in due process. The Roman law is sacred to me, and I want to do things by the book. Oh, great king. Well, don't forget, he was this close to shipping Paul back to the vultures in Jerusalem to gain favor with them, right? To do them a political favor. But once Paul objected and appealed to Rome... He had to scramble to put himself in the best light possible. Look at verse 17, still explaining things to Agrippa, making himself the hero in all this. He says this, So after they, that's all the Jews, had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the judgment seat. I ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accuser stood up, they were not bringing any charges against him for the evil deeds I was expecting." But they had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being perplexed about how to investigate such matters, I was asking whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there to be tried on, his, on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for emperor's decision, the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Where's the mention of the favor here? Where's the political favor? I didn't see it in there. Conveniently absent. Well, verse 22, Agrippa said to Festus, you know what? I'd like to hear this guy myself. I want to hear this man myself tomorrow. Festus said, you shall hear him. So Agrippa wants to hear from Paul. But what's clear here is that Festus is playing a game He's not only a politician, but he's a phony. He's a fraud. Now he's got Agrippa here. He wants to get the king's opinion on what to do next. So he comes up with a reason for... uh, he, He needs to come up with a reason for sending Paul to Rome. He can't send Paul to the emperor without formal charges here. He knows he can't send him based on some religious dispute with the Jews. That would get him in some real hot water with Nero. So he's essentially saying to Agrippa, You know what? Come over here. Tell me what I should do. What should I say in my letter to Caesar here? And that's when Agrippa says, "Well, you know what? Let me hear the guy. Bring Paul out. I want to hear him." Now, Agrippa had very likely heard of Paul. He was very eager to meet him. I'm sure. Uh, So Festus is like, "Yeah, go ahead. Have at him." Now, just a couple things before we move on. First, I want you to notice what pops up as the central, dominant theme here. Okay? When it's all said and done, when all the dust settles, when all the smoke clears, what's made evident? is that Paul was on trial for the resurrection of the dead. He said it before the Sanhedrin, and he said it before Felix two years earlier. I am on trial for the resurrection of the dead. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial for you before you today. Here it is again. This is the basis. The resurrection, remember that. Second, very, impor- very important here. Don't miss the words in verse 19, where Festus says, the Jews had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. Note the flippancy there. Note the smugness with which he uses the name Jesus. Some guy, some dead guy, a certain Jesus. The Jews say he's dead, Paul says he's alive. Is the guy alive, or is he still walking around, or is he dead? I don't know, and frankly, I don't really care. I just got to figure out how to word my letter here, okay? This is the ignorance. This is the, the arrogance of the unbelieving heart. You know, people say it all the time today, even. Oh, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, man, he, he's just some guy who lived a long time ago, right? He was a nice man. He was a good teacher, I guess, And they say his name with no real regard or consideration of his true nature and work, nor the ramifications of what his existing and coming to this earth means for their everlasting soul. They don't know the Jesus of the scriptures. They don't honor him as God, nor do they give thanks to him because they don't truly know him. Pilate did the same thing, right? When he stood face to face with Christ, he said, You do not speak to me, Jesus? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Imagine looking into the eyes of the incarnate God and saying that. Here Festus says, a certain Jesus, uh, one man named Jesus, a dead man named Jesus. Well, they're saying he's dead anyhow. Paul's saying he's alive. I don't know what to do about it. All I know is that he's a Roman citizen and he said he wants to go to Caesar. And well, here we are. So Agrippa, he proposes this meeting with Paul and Festus finally has his ally in the whole thing. Okay? I could see this playing out in the news today with our global leaders, couldn't you? Nothing new under the sun here. Well, it gets even better. Look at verse 23, in your outline. Luke writes, So... On the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the hall, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the order of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Okay? Look at all the different classes of people involved here. You got the king and his sister, the royals, the elites. You got the new governor, not a subordinate to Agrippa, but a peer. He had great authority. You had... The commanders, the chief officials and leaders of the Roman armies, very powerful. And of course, you have the prominent men, the best of the best, the very best that the world had to offer in that time and place. Oh, yeah. Then you got this prisoner, some Jew named Paul. The magnificent you have, and then you have the meek. The haughty and the humble, the self-centered, self-righteous, self-glorifying and the slave, the slave of Christ, on trial for the resurrection of Christ, now in chains, brought out of his prison cell where he's been, and he sat as an uncondemned man for over two years. Luke says that Agrippa and Bernice, the sister-brother-lover rulers, come with great pomp, okay? Great pomp. This word is fantasia where we get the word fantasy. Fantasy of fantasy? That's right. Even fantastic. It refers to something light, fleeting, or passing, something of momentary interest only. It was a demonstration of outward importance, outward appearance. It was a facade, a veneer, a show. It it was, again, a display of prominence, a display of regality, of elegance and splendor. In other words, it was theater, it was the exaltation of sinful man by other sinful men, which, even though at times impresses us and we're prone to be enamored by such fantastic displays of human importance, one can only imagine God as he sits in the heavens laughing at the way we hold our fellow humans in such high esteem. And typically for, for all the wrong reasons, right? Vast wealth, outward appearance, familial alliance, cultural popularity, etc., Actually, we don't have to imagine. God tells us how he views such folly. Remember when he sent Samuel to anoint a son of Jesse to be the king of Israel? The Lord told Samuel, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I see among his sons a king for me. So Samuel did what Yahweh said, came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? And he says, oh yeah, I come in peace. I want to see Jesse and his boys. Bring them, bring them to me. Now, it happened that when the first son, Eliab, entered, Samuel looked at him and thought, Surely the anointed of Yahweh is before me. Man, this guy fits the part. He's a fine, strapping young man indeed. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's got broad shoulders, chiseled features. He no doubt had a beautiful head of hair, which I confess is a desirable trait for any man. I'm looking at you, Colton. (laughs) Samuel says, oh yeah, this is the guy. This is him. This is the king of Israel. But what did Yahweh say? Yahweh said to Samuel, don't do that. Don't look at his outward appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Then he said, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. God sees not as man sees. Man saw Agrippa and Bernice and the show they put on as they rode into the hall of judgment. And they, that man thought, wow, look how special these people are. Look at the purple robes. Look at the jewelry they have on. Look at his crown. Look at his scepter, how it glistens in the sun. Look at all their servants, Man. All well, appearances here, they are really the best of the best of humanity. Surely they will have good judgment and govern our nation well. They are so good looking. But what does God see? Beneath all the fantasy and facade, the royal costumes and the man worship, he sees the heart. He saw King Agrippa, Sister Bernice, he saw the cold, dead, wicked, desperately sin-sick hearts which are hardened to the truths of their creator. He's not fooled as we're all so easily fooled. We do the same things that Samuel did, just admit it. <laughs> we're enamored by uh, historical buildings, the fancy suits, the elaborate press conferences and rallies, the motorcades, the mobiles, the packed stadiums, the sold-out arenas, the huge social media followings. We can sure put on a show, but... None of these things actually reveal the depths of the heart within. Samuel says, okay, what about this one, Lord? And the Lord says, no, not that one. What about this one? No, not that one either. Stop looking on the outside, Samuel. Don't be swayed by externals, Samuel. I'm not impressed with the same things you're impressed with, Samuel. Amitadab, Am- Aminadab comes out and he says, no, nope, not that one either. Shama? nope. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. And he said, Are, are these all the young men? Saying, Is this are these all your sons? Jesse said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's shepherding the sheep. There's that one. And comes the the little shepherd boy, the forgotten young shepherd, a young man, couldn't even walk in Saul's armor, yet God makes him the greatest earthly king who has ever lived, proving that Yahweh's ways are higher than our ways, truly. Fast forward a thousand years. The the circus is rolling into town. The spectacle continues. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa... And all you gentlemen here with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. Remember, they wanted Paul dead. And for what? The resurrection of Christ. But, verse 25, Festus says, I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. Since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Now Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul, stretching out his hand, begins to make his defense. Lord willing, that's what we'll take a look at together next week. You know, in these long narrative accounts, it can be a challenge to draw out some deep, profound theological truth. I mean, the guys in the evening messages, they're preaching through Ephesians. You get two two verses, one verse, a half a verse at a time, and it's just a trove of these monumentally significant, weighty doctrines here. Here, Luke is like, well, here's some historical facts for you. This guy went here, and then he said this, and they responded like this. and It's a narrative. It's just telling us what happened. So we can retell it and comment as we go along, but it's not like we're going to develop some systematic theology from it. Really, what we're after in these long narratives are the principles, right? The principles. What principles can we see and draw from these historical events? What can we take away from these long passages and apply to our lives in the here and now? Well, as I thought about our passage today and I prayed about it, this theme of standing before the so-called authorities on earth kept popping into my mind. Make no mistake here, the goal of these interrogations, the arrest in Jerusalem, the questioning from Claudius Lysias, the trial before the Sanhedrin, Felix, Festus, next week Agrippa, those the goal of those standing before the, his standing before the leaders is to shut him up. They, they want to stop him from proclaiming what he knows to be true. And that's just not in the realm of possibility for the apostle. Think of how easy it would have been for Paul back in Jerusalem as he was being torn limb from limb by his own kinsmen according to the flesh when he was rescued by Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, and his men. Think of how easily he could have gotten out of all this, right? He could have easily claimed Roman citizenship right then and there, promised the Sanhedrin to keep his mouth shut about Jesus like they wanted the apostles to do at first. He could have walked away a free man, exercising his rights as a Roman citizen before enjoying his retirement from ministry back in Tarsus. But instead... On those steps, beaten and bloody, he said, Commander, may I say something? I'm a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to these people, the people who are just killing him. Let me go back out there. I have something to say to them, something of eternal significance. And then he shares his testimony and proclaims the resurrection of the dead, and he'll do it again next week in In Acts chapter 26. Why? Because ultimately he recognized who the true king was. The one who said, Paul will bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And here he is. Here he is again. So what's the takeaway from this? What's the principle? Well, I'd say it's a continuation of last week's theme. When you stand before kings and governors, never forget who the true king is, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and remember that your ultimate allegiance is to him first. Your allegiance is really to him alone. Paul stood before men who had the authority, the position, the power to pronounce judgments upon his life, to have a profound impact on the rest of his earthly life. Technically, if Festus wanted to, he could have made the judgment to have Paul condemned, thrown back in prison for life, or even killed. It may have come back to bite him with Paul being a Roman citizen, but it still could have happened here. Festus, Festus could have proved to be thoroughly corrupted like so many before him, demand that he be sent back to Jerusalem, but instead he took advantage of the loophole to allowed for him to pass the responsibility on to someone else. But that doesn't always happen, right? In the same way, we too have politicians and district attorneys and judges and governors, presidents, who have the power to have a profound impact on the rest of our earthly life. When and if you ever find yourself in Paul's position, standing before one of them, before one of their judgment seats, which again, as we said last week, is looking like a very real possibility for the true believer in Christ as this culture is in a rapid descent into gross immorality. This is a society that is increasingly fond of their own darkness. When and if you find yourself standing before them, amidst all the corruption of the day, amidst all the politics, amidst all the pressure of a society that calls what is good evil, and what is evil good, no matter what extreme tactics they may implement or to silence you or to extinguish the light that shines upon their cold, dead hearts. Never forget where your true allegiance lies. Never forget where your ultimate allegiance lies, with Christ. Never compromise on what you know to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ. Never compromise. Never bend the knee to men. Or participate in their demonic delusions. Never bow down to mere men, regardless of how much pomp and splendor accompanies them. Now, again, you don't have to be antagonistic. We don't have to be combative. God instituted government, authority. We ought to submit and obey, unless they asked us to do something contrary to the clear commands of our king in Scripture. I mean, in the very next chapter, we'll see Paul standing firm. He's uncompromising in his defense. He's boldly declaring his testimony, but we'll also see his heart, which longs for the salvation of Agrippa and Bernice. But at the end of the day, he remains true to his king. His allegiance to his king proves unwavering because he knows that his king has everlasting power and eternal authority. It's not just for a season like our temporary rulers enjoy. They have a little bit of authority for a little bit bit of time. Paul knew that his king had eternal authority. He knew his king says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. They can only do so much to us. Rather, he says, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That was Jesus who said that. Again, Pilate says to Jesus, "You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you?" I'm telling you, this is the height of arrogance. but it's par for the course with world rulers. Don't you know about my authority? I'm the Speaker of the House. I'm the Senate Majority Leader. And the Supreme Court Justice, Prime Minister, El Presidente. Wow, that's very impressive. Very impressive. You think Jesus or Paul would have trembled before them? No. Remember when Jesus was being arrested? He told those in the garden who sought to defend him from a band of soldiers, he said, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? You know how much a legion is? 6,000. Don't don't do that to me, John. I did the calculations. (laughs) A wise man tells me I may have done math wrong. I'm going to listen. I think it's 6,000. 12 legions of angels. How much is that? What's 12 times 6? 72. 72, 72,000 angels in an instant. Now in Isaiah 37, 36, the prophet said that Yahweh sent one of his angels to defeat King Sennacherib in the camp of Assyrians. Keyword, one of his angels. The angel, is it, is it a thousand or six? Okay. Three or six? Let's go with six because that's what I did the math on here. <laughs> and if it's a thousand, show me grace. All right. Listen to what he said about one of his angels in Isaiah. Then the angel went out. The angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. The men arose early in the morning, and behold, all of them were dead bodies. Okay? Jesus says, Anytime, any place, and at once, I can have 72,000 of those same angels right here to fight for me. Well, according to the capabilities of a single angel in Isaiah, the 12 legions could have wiped out the world's population in the first century 26 times over. in a single night. And I don't even think they broke a sweat. They wouldn't even break a sweat. You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? I have the authority to crucify you? Authority? Authority? He told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above a certain Jesus, some guy named Jesus, a dead guy named Jesus. No, he is alive. He is king. He is our king. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords, and therefore we cannot and we must not bow down to any man Remember that when you you stand before your so-called authorities who seek to silence you in that hour, remember what he told his followers. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say for It will be given to you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, But the spirit of your father who speaks in you. I like it when my king tells me, do not worry, don't you? My encouragement to you this morning remember who you will stand before on Judgment Day. Remember whose throne you will stand before. It won't be our president, it won't be our governors, it won't be our senators. It won't be the Supreme Court. It won't be the Sanhedrin or the earthly kings and rulers, not the Pope, not some imam or the false gods they worship, not the prime minister or high chancellor, not the folks on Twitter or CNN, not your boss, not your dean, not your co-workers or the local school board, not your mom, not your dad, not your husband, not your wife or your kids or your sister or your brother, not it your family or your friends or elders or pastors, nor any of our fellow churchmen, but only before the immortal, invisible, the only God, the king of the ages. Let me ask you this morning, do you know this king? Do you know the king of kings? Are you confident that should you stand before your earthly rulers to give an account for your profession of faith, are you confident that you actually have the spirit of the ever-living God on the inside of you to give you the words to say? Well, you can be certain this morning. As Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus said, you yourself have said that I'm a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Have you heard the voice of the king of kings this morning? the king of kings who stood in that Roman praetorium after having been spit upon, struck, unjustly condemned by his own people, the religious leaders of Israel, after having been scourged and whipped and beaten and had a purple robe draped over him, a crown of thorns placed upon his head, smashed into his skull. As John says, they mocked him. They were coming to him and saying, Hail, king of the Jews. We're giving him slaps in the face. Oh, well, 12 legions of angels remained on standby. They held their position. And for what? What purpose? Why why did he sit there and take all this abuse when he could have just wiped them all out just like that? Why did the king of kings have to suffer and die so that the scriptures would be fulfilled? I could call down 12 legions, but I'm not going to because then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? The the scriptures say it must happen this way. He said, all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Paul would go on to say the same thing to Agrippa next week in the very next chapter. I'm only standing here on trial because of the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. I stand here bearing witness to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. He says, you believe the prophets, don't you, Agrippa? The prophets who who said, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The scriptures which say, He grew up before Him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We did not esteem him. The exact opposite of what Agrippa and Bernice rolled into town like, right? It was written that the Christ should be led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a perfect sacrifice, a perfect sin-atoning, wrath-satisfying substitute for sinners. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And that's exactly what happened. The sinless one coming from heaven, coming into this world, dying for the sinners, the just for the unjust. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus, our king, died for his subjects. He died for the ungodly. So his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But it but Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days. That's the resurrection. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed his hand. Peter says, this is exactly what happened. Remember at Pentecost? This Jesus of Nazareth, who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Jesus says, for this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Do you know this truth? And do you know the truth of the gospel of grace? The gospel which said that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, his eternal son, to this earth which he spoke into existence to be born of a virgin, to be conceived of through the power of the Holy Spirit, truly God, truly man, to be born under the law, tempted as we are, and yet because He was God, He never violated the law. He never deviated from the right to the left of His Father's perfect law, His perfect will. He never sinned against His Father in thought, word, or deed. Rather, He went about proclaiming divine truth while showing love and compassion, healing, and mercy to those who were considered His enemies. Those who had willfully transgressed his holy law like all of us. Yet the suffering servant of God was delivered up into the hands of lawless men. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was nailed to a Roman cross where he would hang his head and breathe his last. Where he would become sin. Not a sinner, but he would become sin. And be separated from his father for the first time in all of eternity so that all those who would believe in him, all those who would call upon his name alone for salvation, would never have to be. As he was made to be sin who knew no sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you believe this? Do do you believe that he bore the penalty for your transgressions? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he took your place on the cross at Calvary? Do you believe that he paid your sin debt in full? Do you, do you believe that eternal reconciliation uh, to and an in- eternal life with an infinitely holy God can only come through faith alone in the death, peril, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now, even now, seated at the right hand of the Father on high, and is sovereignly ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who belong to him, all of those who believe in his name by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Do you you believe that? Do you believe that he's speaking to you through his spirit, to his word, that he's guiding your paths to ultimately bring glorification to himself? Do you believe that he's coming again? Do you believe that there's a coming There's coming a day when the heavens will open and behold, a white horse will come bursting forth. And he who sits on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war that from his mouth will come a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he'll have on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Do you believe this? Do you believe he's coming again? Do you know this truth? Then, my brothers and sisters, when you stand before kings and governors and rulers, like Paul, never, ever forsake that which you know to be true to save your own neck. Never forsake your king, never compromise in what your king has commanded and made absolutely clear in his holy and inspired word. amen yeah. amen let 's have Noel and the music team come up. if you don 't know this king and you haven 't heard his voice, I pray that you would listen that even this morning, through his word, his holy and inspired word you would recognize that you are a savior in desperate need of a you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior you're a great sinner in fact but he is a great great savior heavenly father i just pray for anyone here who may be hearing your voice that you would do a mighty work in their hearts, that you would transform their hearts this morning, that you would save their everlasting soul by your grace alone. I pray that you would be glorified in how we live our lives, that you would guide our paths to allow us to walk in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you, Lord. Please do a work in the hearts of whoever here is listening who may not know you. Allow them to repent, to turn from their sins turn from this world and to turn to their creator by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name we pray, amen. amen.